You know, the kingdom of God is a hard reality to grasp, isn't it? It, it, It's a difficult reality to grasp, and it always has been. In fact, in our text today, you're going to see that the kingdom of God and understanding the kingdom of God is something that people really, really struggled with. And I think it's hard because, in a sense, in Jesus, the kingdom has already come, right? In Jesus, the kingdom has already come. It's been consummated. It was consummated in his ministry, in his life. Like, in Jesus, the kingdom of God has already come, but it is still yet to reach its fulfillment, right? And so I kind of thought of it this way this week, and it's probably a bad analogy, but I'm going to give it anyway. It's kind of like pregnancy, I remember uh, my wife and I, if you don't know our background, we, we struggled with infertility for almost three years and, uh, and prayed and prayed and tried and tried and all those kind of things. It was misery, let me tell you. Uh, just all that trying. It was tough. Um, tough on me. Uh, but I, I remember the moment that Hope finally cried out and she screamed. I won't go into all the details, but I was like, oh my gosh. And I, I remember at that moment, at that moment, uh, I became, I became a father. I was a father at that moment, right? It, 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 had, been, it had been consummated. And in fact, I remember the very first sonogram, and, and, and they go and they show us the sonogram, and there's this little, what looks like a kernel of rice, just jumping around, and like I was the father of that, right? Of that, that like, I, like it, it, it had been consummated. But, but it didn't reach its fulfillment until she gave birth, and they placed him in my arms, and he peed all over me, right? And then in that moment, I, I, maybe that's the bad analogy part, but, but at that moment... It's fulfillment. Like, wow, there's a human being in my arms that belongs to me, right? And and so um, today in our text, you're going to see that that tension, the the already and the not yet, that tension. Jesus is going to talk to two groups of people. And and to each group, he's going to talk about one of those aspects. To the first group, he's going to talk about the fact that the kingdom is already here. And then to the second group, which we're going to focus on, spend most of our time in, he's going to be talking about the fact that the fulfillment of the kingdom hasn't yet happened, okay? So let's jump in together. Before we do, let's pray. I'll be in Luke chapter 17. We're going to finish out the chapter. I'm starting in verse 20. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we come this morning trying to grasp something that is difficult, trying to understand this already not yet aspect of of your kingdom, God, of of your kingdom. And Lord, uh, many of us here, feel the tension of that. Many of us here have longed. We've been waiting patiently. And we can't wait for you to come back and to restore us, to make all things new. But Lord, in the midst of this phase of waiting, there's some lessons we need to learn. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come now and teach us and guide us. Holy Spirit, uh, this is your time and you are the teacher of this church. Teach us the ways of Jesus from the inside out. Lift him up that he might draw all men unto himself. Jesus, we ask this in your holy, powerful, and precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. It says, Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation." Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. 
So the first audience that Jesus is talking to here is the Pharisees, it says. And, and he says to them, the kingdom doesn't come with your careful observation, right? And, and, and guys, basically, you've got to understand the Pharisees kind of had a list of things that they believed would have to happen. Almost kind of this apocalyptic stuff that would they were all signs of the end of the age. And when all these things began to happen, they knew that then they could start looking for the Messiah. Then uh, the, God was going to come and restore his kingdom and, and, and restore. Israel to political power, and Jesus says to these people, it's not like that. He says to these people, it's, it's, it's not like that. You're not going to be able to do that. Your careful observations aren't working. You're not going to be able to look and say, there he is, or here he is. That's not how it's, it's going to work, and, and here's the reason why. You ready? It's not going to work like that because, he says, the kingdom of God is right here standing before you. Now, the NIV kind of muddies this water for us. It says that Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. It's probably a poor translation there. The word in the Greek can mean within, but, but typically would mean within your midst, amongst you. Right? It actually comes from a word in Greek that means in, but it also means by, with, or among by, with, or among. See, like, listen, you're, you, you can't look for the kingdom of God over here or over there. You can't have a list of things that say the kingdom of God is going to... Because the kingdom of God is, is, is right here in front of your face. I am the Messiah, Jesus is saying, right? So that's the first audience. To the first audience, Jesus says the kingdom is already here. But listen to what he says to the second audience, starting in verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, there's our second audience. He says to his disciples, the, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. But you will not see it. Men will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house uh, with goods inside should go down uh, to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life, his possessions, is going to lose it. And whoever loses his life, is willing to walk away from those things, will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Hmm. Let's focus in on the second audience. So, Pastor, why, why don't we focus on the first audience? Well, because Jesus was speaking to Pharisees. I don't think you guys are Pharisees. And he was saying, the Messiah is standing before you. 
The kingdom is, is here. The kingdom has already been established, right? Uh, we, we can't re-preach that. Jesus is no longer physically on earth. He's now in heaven. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to try to seek application out of that first audience. The second audience, however, has a lot to do with us as we talk about the kingdom that is coming. And so three things I want to share with you. And here's the first, really a big picture, okay? And so we're going to step back from our text, right? Sometimes we get in a text where we're so close to it that we can't see the bigger truth. So we're going to kind of kind of hover over it. I like to call this the helicopter view. This is the aerial view of what's going on in the grand scheme of God. And so this is the first truth we need to understand, okay? Number one, that Jesus came in humility to save the world. Right? Jesus came in humility to save the world. He will return in glory to judge it. Okay? That's the great truth of, of Scripture. This is Jesus, the Messiah, standing in front of these men. Right? He is here. He, he, he is with them. And, and he, he's come to, to save. That's, that's why he's there. Jesus came in humility to save. He's going to return in glory to judge. Please don't miss the humility of Christ in verse 20 and 21. Think of this with me. God himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, is standing before men that are claiming to be experts in the ways of God. Okay? Do you see the irony? God is standing before a group of men that are claiming to be experts in the ways of God, right? And these experts in the ways of God are asking God himself, um, what are the signs of the end of, of the age, right? I mean, that's, that's what it says. It says, um, they ask, when would the kingdom come? Now, they ask that because they have a whole list of things that they believe have to happen, right? They're saying, Jesus, you're a teacher. We want to test you. What do you think has to happen in order for the kingdom of God to come, right? Now, they knew what they thought had to happen. In their minds, what had to happen is they had to force every good Jewish person to obey the law perfectly. And if they could put those burdensome commands upon everybody, and if they would actually live up to them, they believed that God would be forced to come and bless them and restore them. This is why they put so much effort into making new laws. They thought, if we can just clean up everyone's behavior, God will then have to come and restore Israel to great political position. So, so I, I just want you to see, these are the experts in the ways of God. And they're standing before God and they're questioning God. Now listen, this is, this is the humility of Christ, right? Because think of what Jesus could have done. Like at this point, Jesus being God could have laid out each of their secret sins before the whole crowd. <laughs> Been like, Harry, you were thinking about your neighbor's wife last night. I mean, he could have just laid it bare. He'd be like, Larry, you were thinking about Harry. I mean, he could have just, he could have laid that stuff bare. I mean, he could have embarrassed them. I, I, I mean, terribly, right? He could have just proved his divinity. He could have stood before them and go, you know what? Uh, let, let's, let's just stop this right now. Harry, I'm going to tell you how many hairs are on your head, okay? Ready? Here it is. Boom, boom, boom. Larry, go count them. Right? He, he could have done it. He could have stopped and said, you know what? Let, let's just stop for a second. Do you guys have any clue how the 11 major systems of the organs all work together? Do you guys know how that works? Because let me tell you how I knit all those things together. Like Jesus in his divinity, he could have done, but that's not why he came. 
Jesus didn't come for that. Jesus came in humility in order to save. I want you to see his attitude and, and his purpose. This is the attitude and the purpose of Jesus' first coming. Okay, Ready for attitude? We're going to look at Philippians 2. It's on the screen for you. Philippians 2, 5-11 through 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. That's attitude. So here's, here's Christ's attitude according to Scripture. Who being uh, in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, it's humility, uh, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross as a sinner. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So this is the attitude of Christ in his first coming. Now I want you to see his purpose, right? John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Ready? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is why he's not just giving it to the Pharisees right now. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. And, and so we begin here and we just say, like, we've got... To see this, we can't, uh, we can't miss this. Jesus has come in humility to save the world. He has. But, but to do that, it's going to cost him something. Look at verse 25. Again, we're in Luke 17, verse 25. It says, but first he must suffer many things. So Jesus has come in humility to save the world, but to do such, he's got to suffer, right? He's got to die on the cross. He's going to have to be buried. He's going to have to conquer death. He's going to have to hang out and tell people, show people that that he's really alive again. He's going to have to ascend into heaven and prepare a place for us. And then he's going to come back and to take us with him, right? And and that's, that's what we have always said, to take us with him. But I want you to see the purpose of his second coming. It's a radically different purpose. His first coming, he comes in humility to save. His second coming, he comes in glory and he comes with the purpose of judgment. That's why Noah is mentioned. That's why Lot is mentioned and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's mentioned because those were great days of judgment in the Bible where God judged the world. Friends, when Jesus comes back, this is what he's coming to do. He is coming to judge the world And to set all things right. That's the big picture, okay? Hovering over the aerial view that Jesus came in humility to save. He is coming back in glory to judge. New heaven, new earth, all of that stuff. That's happening. That's happening. All right? A part of that is is this text. for, For those things to happen, he must come and judge the earth. All right? Number two. According to our passage, the Son of God will not return in secret. He's not going to return in secret, but He will surprise many. The Son of God will not return in secret, but He will surprise many. Um, Dear Christian friend, my brother, my sister, please listen to me. Uh, I know you're ready to go home. I know it. I get it. That's one of the top songs on the radio right now, right? Chris Tomlin, I'm going home. I mean, I mean, people are singing that song at the top of their lungs right now. They are ready for the streets of gold. They are ready to be in the presence of God. You know why, in, in my opinion, we're so ready to go home? Because we're tired, right? 
Because we're hurt and we're tired of being hurt. We're weary and we're, we're worn out here as travelers on this earth. We're, we're, we're tired of death and we're tired of disease and we're tired of divorce and we're tired of disaster. Like, I, I get it, man. I'm no, I feel the same way. I know that you are ready to, uh, to go home. I know you're ready for Jesus to return, but you need to be careful. I'm going to say that again. You need to be careful. Luke includes some language here that is found nowhere else in the Bible. Okay? And, and, and what he includes is something that Jesus had says to his disciples that nobody else includes. And what he says, now, now, now get it, he says this to his disciples, and, and what he says to them, uh, look at it, it's right here, um, verse 22. You're going to long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but listen to what he says to the disciples, but you will not see it. Jesus is actually telling him, you're not going to see my return. You're going to die before that. Now, why does Luke include this? That, that, that's what all the scholars would, would try to dig around and figure out. And, and here's the, the, the common belief stretched among scholars that are liberal and conservative, right? The common belief is that Luke is, is writing to a particular audience. Now, remember this with me. It seems like we're in the story right now. It seems like we're walking with Jesus right now. He's heading to the cross. We're in it. But that's not who, when Luke is writing. Luke isn't there. When Luke writes these words, when he pens these words, Jesus is already in heaven. He is writing these words post-resurrection, post-ascension. He's writing these words to a people that are already in the church age. Right? The church age is the waiting period that we're in right now. So Luke is writing to people that are already expecting the return of Jesus. They're already wondering, why has Jesus not come back? Where is he? He said he was coming to restore us. He said he was coming to make things, and yet he's been a long time off. Where is he? And so Luke writes to these people and, 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 and to his audience, and he writes them this great warning, right? His audience is struggling with wanting the return of Jesus now. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And when somebody wants the return of Christ so badly, when they're hurting so badly that they want that complete restoration, the truth is they are prone and open to attack from false teaching. And so Luke warns them, be on guard, right? He includes these words of Jesus in verse 23. Uh, he says, Jesus speaking, says, Men will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. Don't go running after these people that have some kind of secret, uh, secret special knowledge of, Oh, Jesus is going to return over here. He's got to return over there. Or you've got to do this, or you've got to do that, and then you'll be able to see him. And Jesus says, why? Like, don't listen to those people, ready? Because when I come back, it's not going to be a secret. Look at what he says here. Verse 24, For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes... Right? And lights up the entire sky from one end to another. Another translation says from the east to the west. Jesus is saying, like, when I come back, you are not going to be able to miss it. I love what John says in Revelation 1. Revelation chapter 1 says, look, he is coming with the clouds. And get this, every eye will see him. Every eye. Just a couple? Just a few secret with special knowledge? Just those that say, you've got to be over here? No, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him will see him. People that are long and dead and gone are going to see the glorious return of Jesus. And all people on earth will mourn because of him, so it shall be. 
When Jesus returns, it will not be in secret. But listen to me. Many people, according to our text, will be surprised. When he returns, every eye will see it. But a lot of people are going to be caught off guard. People like in the day of Noah or Lot will be totally focused on living for themselves. By the way, that, that's what it's talking about in, in, in the day of Noah or, or Lot. It says they were eating and they were drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were building, right? It was marriage and, and merriment and, and then Jesus is going to return right there. And unfortunately, many of them will not be ready. His point, make sure that you're not one of them. Be ready. Be ready for the return, okay? Which brings us to our last point. This morning, I want you to understand that the return of Jesus will be sudden, unexpected, and it will result in immediate and absolute separation of people. The return of Jesus will be sudden, unexpected, and it will result in immediate and absolute separation of people. Uh, Verse 26 through 35. I've got to turn the page in my Bible to get there. It says, just as it was in the days of Noah... So also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But the day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods should go inside, uh, should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. These are tough words. We already touched on this a bit. But I want to say this to you. Noah and Lot aren't mentioned here because of particular sins. I, I, we need to say that. We, we, you hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah and everybody immediately goes to one particular sin in our modern day. Um, you notice Jesus actually doesn't mention that sin at all in this text. He actually doesn't mention sins at all. He says they were eating and drinking and they were building and they were, they were, they were having marriages. All he's saying is that they were focused on themselves. He doesn't actually call out any sins here. He just says they, they were just focused on living life. And in the midst of it, they're, they're focused on all these things. And then all of a sudden, the rain began. Then all of a sudden, the fire fell. It, it, it caught a mass amount of people off guard. They weren't ready. Saying it, and, then, and then Jesus says this, verse 30. It will be, right, verse 30. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's what Scripture says over and over. You, you don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. The point, it will be unexpected. It will be unexpected. People will be caught completely off guard. It, 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 it won't be like a hurricane that you've got a week or two to prepare. Suddenly Jesus will drop from the sky. It's going to be sudden and unexpected. I I want you to see the result of this sudden, unexpected return of Jesus. Verse 34 and verse 35. Tell you on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. That's some strange stuff right there, isn't it? I tell you what, that whole thought of one being taken and the other left, that's scary enough that you could write a book about that, right? You maybe even make a movie or two. What does that mean, though? 
What does the word taken actually mean? Have you ever stopped and thought, we've just said, oh yeah, they're taken. But I want you to think about it contextually because Jesus gives us context. He mentions some people. He mentions Noah and he mentions Lot. And then he gives us this word in Greek, taken, which is interesting because the, the, the word taken, it can mean taken, right? Which makes great books and movies. But it also means accepted, to be received, okay? And, and in light of the context of Noah and Lot, I, I want to I tell you this, it does not seem to point to a removal. Noah wasn't removed. Lot wasn't removed. They just escaped. And it would seem to be that Jesus is saying, when he uses the word taken, that, that his people are going to escape the judgment that is coming. Not that they are going to be removed necessarily. Because again, Noah and Lot, the people that he used, he, he could have used somebody that was taken right up into heaven. You guys have an example from the Old Testament? Yeah. Wouldn't Jesus have used that person if he was saying, they'd be taken? He uses, instead, Noah and Lot. So let's put this all together. When Jesus returns to renew all things and establish a new heaven and a new earth, he's going to come in glory to judge the world. And that judgment is going to result in immediate separation. Matthew 25, the sheep from the goats. That's going to happen immediately. Right? And, and, and upon that separation, that separation is going to be His people on one side, those that have trusted Him, right? As the way and the truth and the life, those that understand that no one comes to God except through Jesus, those people that have allowed Him to be in control of their lives, those people, says, are, are going to be received by Him at that moment. Those people, His people, are going to be accepted by Him at that moment. They are going to escape the wrath and the judgment that is coming for the rest of the world. That's the picture. That's the picture. Now, it's helpful to understand the picture, right? It's helpful to understand the biblical text. But then we're always left with this question. So, Pastor, what does that mean for me, right? I mean, because be honest, like judgment, that's not high on your list of things you come to church to hear about, right? Didn't wake up this morning going, oh man, I really need a word on judgment. Just can't wait. Probably woke up, oh Jesus, I'm just hoping for a nice, encouraging word. I would love it, but we're working through the whole book, okay? Encouragement's coming. But let me give you some encouragement, some action, some things that you can do. Because we know that this is true. Because that's actually more important than feeling good about ourselves. Right? I, I could tell you to feel really good about yourself, and yet a massive storm was heading this way, and I could just go home and tell you, oh, go out to eat. Don't worry about it. Don't board up your windows. You just go out and dance in the rain. You get struck by lightning and carried off by a tornado. Or, or we could say, listen, there is a terrible storm heading this way. You better go bar the doors. You better get prepared. By the grace of God, he's told us that a storm is coming. And that storm, you know what happens after the storm? That's one of my favorite times, right? After the rain has fell and you walk out and everything's at peace, right? We've got renewal, okay? God is going to renew all things, but judgment has to happen first. So what can we do? 
when we understand that truth. Okay, number one, uh, we can get ready. We can get ready. Absolutely. Okay? There's only one way to do that according to this text, and his name is Jesus. That's it. And so I just tell you, if you haven't dealt with Jesus, you need to do that today. Not someday, not a later day. If you personally have not dealt with Jesus, you've heard the truth, judgment is coming, and I wish I could tell you, oh, don't worry, it's not going to happen for another 30 years. Go do whatever you want, right? I mean, that'd be great. That'd make us really popular. Unfortunately, that's not the truth of Scripture. Scripture says, like, I don't know. It could be tomorrow. It could, it, it could be six years from now. It could be 600 years from now. I don't know. But I do know that judgment is coming and that all men will be held accountable. And I know there's only one way to escape that judgment, and that's through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Either you will pay for your sins or you will allow him to pay for your sins. That is it. Somebody has to pay. And so you will either stand before God and be held accountable for every action you have ever uh, done, everything you have ever said, every thought you have ever had, everything you didn't do. Either you will pay account for that or you will stand before God saying, I have trusted Jesus. I've trusted Jesus that he died for me, that, 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 that he died in my place. And I've, I've given him my life. He owns me. And he has paid my way. He's paid my bill. He's paid my debt. So I would challenge you this morning, if you haven't done that, do that today. And say, Pastor, how do I do that? It's actually not as hard as you think. It's really not as hard as you think. Uh, uh, Lifeway would tell you that there's a little prayer you pray. It's ABC. Um, you know, and they'll sell it to you in a very pretty package. Um, but all they're trying to tell you is something we've known for a long time, is that you have to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. You have to believe that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he died in your place, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he conquered death. He ascended into heaven where now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he's preparing a place for you. You have to believe he's coming back to restore all things. You've got to believe that. But there's a second phase. It's not enough to believe it. The Bible says you also have to confess it. With your mouth, you actually have to say, you have to call upon the name of Jesus. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, the Bible says, will be saved. And so it's, it, it's kind of like, uh, help, I'm drowning. Really, if you were drowning, you typically want to say something. If, if you were in a building that was burning, you typically want to cry out. If you were in a car wreck, you want to call somebody, right? You, you just you call out, save me, help me, God. I, I heard a story of, of, a, of a friend of ours, actually, that was going to be in a terrible car wreck. And they were driving, and they knew they were going to get hit. And they saw it coming, and just, I mean, they had a split second, and, and this was the prayer. Save me. That's all they could get out. Bam. They were hit, and they walked away. Right? Doesn't happen for everybody, but that is her testimony, and she is so powerful. I prayed that very simple prayer in a split second, and God saved me. I walked away. She knows for the rest of her life the power of, of the one true God, right? Okay? Listen, it's just that simple. If you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and you believe that he can save you, you just ask him to. That's confessing. Okay? So first, I would say you've got to deal with Jesus and get ready. Number two, um, for those of you that have already accepted Christ, I want to tell you, you need to be on guard. I think there's a new wave of this going on in the church that's saying, hey, 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 hey. We've got to be really diligent. We need to look over here for Jesus coming, or we need to look over there for Jesus coming. One of the things that Luke is saying, listen, if you don't understand how frail you are and how bad, like, it, it, let's just start here. Who, who would say today, I'm ready for Jesus to come back? Amen? Anybody? Like, you've just, you're tired of it? Like, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the news. I'm tired of how I feel. I am tired of the hurt. Okay, so if you're ready for Jesus to come back, then you are open to false teachers dragging you off in the wrong direction. 
Because the desire in you for restoration is so great that, that the enemy can come and use that against you. He can come and say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. God's going to restore, but you've got to do this. Or he's going to come back, but you've got to do that, right? That's false teaching, and so you, you've got to be on guard against those things. Uh, Jesus, when he comes back, it's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be some, like he's already laid it out. It, it's going to be seen by all. And last thing I would challenge you to do is uh, live for the lost. Live for the lost. This strikes some church people as wrong. Just going to be honest. You say, no, 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 I'm just supposed to live for God, right? I'm living for God. I'm living for Jesus. That's awesome. But if you're really living for Jesus, you're living for the lost because somebody asked him, like, why are you here, Lord? He said, the Son of Man came to seek and save those that are lost. Church, I love you. I do. How often do we make the time we gather together about us? Anybody? We like the way that we do things. We like the pews and the paint and the stained glass. We like the songs that we sing. We like them to be a certain way. We like to sit in certain places. We like our parking spots. We like being comfortable. We like, if we're going to be honest, some of us like not having some of the lost people we know that are lost. We like a day without them. Shame on us. That somebody might go to hell because I needed a break from them. One day a week. Shame on us. You know what they need? You might be, you might be amazed that if that person came to know Jesus, they became your best friend. That if that person came to know Jesus, their life would be transformed in such a way that they would be the sweet aroma of Christ that made you want to go back to work every day. Instead of the opposite. You follow me? We have to live for the laws. Two things should happen in this place when we gather. Okay, Number one, God should be honored. That should be our agenda, to honor God, okay? The second thing that should be done, the, thing, the, the rule here, should be, it should be the aroma of Christ to lost people. That's what it should be. And if it's not those things, then we're messing up. We really, really are, okay? So I, w- I want to challenge you. We've got to move past our desires, our wants, our rules, our regulations, and we've got to get to a point that we have a heart for lost people. We're not surprised at, the, at, at language that may be used. We're not surprised at, you know, I, I had a, a young lady, and I've shared this with you before, back when I was a youth pastor, my first job, um, that um, she, God got a hold of her, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, she started coming to church, and the young lady would come on Sunday morning, and she came in the only clothes she had, which were a little too small for her uh, in certain areas. And while that is definitely something that in Christian love can be addressed, it can also definitely be addressed in a non-biblical Christian loving fashion. Amen? Unfortunately, it was done in the second. And this little girl that was coming to church and bawling her eyes out, and the Lord was speaking to her, got told by some woman in the church that she was dressed inappropriately, and it broke her heart. She bawled and bawled and bawled because she didn't have any money, and her parents didn't have any money, and she didn't have anything else that she could wear. It would have been really cool if that deacon's wife would have got a little undignified herself. <laughs> Maybe if she had to unbutton a couple of buttons to make her feel comfortable for a service. And then in love, she could have taken her to... Buy some new clothes. There's a line. I get it. I know, I, I know we want it to be easier, but there's a tension. 
And friends, in our tension, we cannot forget Jesus came to seek and save those that are lost. Those that are lost. And we are living and breathing testimonies of that God. Let's act like it. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Jesus, you are coming back. You're going to set all things new. We're here for a reason. You've given us a task. That task is your task. Love the lost. Get people ready. Lord, that can only happen if we ourselves are ready. Break us out. And here's the the sad truth. Many Christians today have fallen into the same pattern that we hear about in the people of Noah and Lot's day. We're living for ourselves. We're focused on what makes us happy. God, help us repent today and focus on what makes you happy, which is reaching lost people. Lord, today we need to be a people that are focused on getting ready. Prepare our hearts, please, in Jesus' name. We ask these things.